Let's go now to the Bible, Hebrews chapter 1. If you found that, I'll invite you to stand at home. And right here in the sanctuary, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Hebrews chapter 1. I want to pull verse 4 in and then pick up verse 5 and move forward. Grass with us and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin right there in verse 4. <clears throat> Speaking of Jesus. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up, and like a garment they'll be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Join me as we pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray you would help me today to, to preach in a way that opens up what you're saying here. God, keep me from saying anything that steps outside of what your word means. And help your people. God, we need help, and we've come today, the Lord's Day, to, to sit under the authority of the word and have our souls ministered to. So, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, to the glory of you, our Heavenly Father. We pray this will happen in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> what does it actually mean to genuinely be a Christian in a hostile society? To, to joyfully embrace everything that the Bible says and then humbly and faithfully seek to live that out in a way that honors God. What does it mean to be a Christian in a day-to-day -day fashion? Furthermore, what does it look like to, to, to live under the reproach of Christ in a culture of moral relativism and social anarchy? I really think that you and I, as Christians in 2022, Finding out what that looks like. Finding out firsthand with the, the outside pressure and the inside struggle 
And with those two together, there's always a temptation to actually compromise. The struggle is always to compromise. To compromise on the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. To compromise on what we actually believe and how to live it. To compromise on where we find ourselves and what we participate in. That's why I think that for 2022, this year, I think that the book of Hebrews is so important for the modern-day Christian in the 21st century. Now, more than any time in living memory, we we are living under the mortal pressure to step away from our biblical convictions and Christian compassion. We are under pressure to step away. Two things that you got to hold in tension. Biblical convictions and Christian compassion. I mean, you can just look. Look, look in the church rearview mirror. Look behind us. And behind us, we can see so many historic denominations that at one time had a, a vibrant, robust, orthodox Christianity. They now have crashed onto the trash heap of moral moral relativism, biblical compromise. And Hebrews, if you can sit down, uh, read it in about an hour and a half, Hebrews seems to be a sobering antidote that wakes us up to the excellencies of the exalted Lord Jesus. It's as if the author is red-faced seeking to convince the church to hold tight and to stand fast under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, the passage I've read to you this morning, starting in really in about verse 5, the passage I've read to you this morning is a bit of a polemic. A polemic. He's writing an argument. The, The preacher is making a statement. And here in this passage, he begins his systematic display of how Jesus is greater. He'll he'll start with the angels. He'll say Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than law. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. That Jesus is, it's what the whole book is about. And he's calling his people, you and I, to give a full-throated devotion and allegiance and commitment to Christ. The the preacher starts, he, he starts with the lowest he starts uh, and picks out the, the lowest thing under a divine being. He starts with the angels. Be- before getting us into the work of Christ, he, he has this intention of showing us who is the person of Christ. Second Temple Judaism. Judaism between the Testaments, between the Old Testament And the New Testament, the Judaism of this day, Second Temple Judaism had a little bit of a fascination with angels. And here the preacher needs to recalibrate their theological understanding because if you don't get theology right, you can't get Christian living right. And the big danger, the preacher saw it, the big danger of elevating the status of angels is the same danger we have elevating any person or part of culture or something that distracts us. It compromises the soul-thrilling, overwhelming superiority of Jesus. 
And so for the time we have together, let's read the Bible, and I want you to see that the supremacy of Christ must captivate our hearts. Jesus being supreme, the supremacy of Christ must. If we're going to fight off what we've got to fight off, the supremacy of Christ must captivate our hearts. Fight compromise by looking at Christ. Here's what I want you to see. Number one, see him there. See him as a rescuing Savior, a rescuing Savior. What the text tells us in the course of this passage that I read to you, it's a fascinating passage because from verse 5 to verse 14, the preacher uses seven Old Testament quotations. It's like he's writing this sermon and he's using the Bible to, to support what he's saying. Seven times he uses quotations from the, uh, from the Old Testament, and he starts out in verse 4 and 5 with a psalm. You see there, verse 5 is Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is a more excellent name than theirs. And then he quotes the Bible, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, Psalm 2, 7. Or again, he goes to the history books, 2 Samuel. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What is going on here? 100 times. <clears throat> 100 times in the Old Testament, angels are mentioned. 160 times in the shorter New Testament, angels are mentioned. Angels, they are important. They, they release prisoners. I mean, read the book of Acts. Angels, they release prisoners, they instruct preachers, angels encourage believers, help travelers, angels judge the blasphemous, they're there at judgment. But the angels, as great as they are, are a part of a created order. They're messengers. Messengers. They read the Gospels, they told about the coming of Christ, they declared the birth of Christ. They ministered to Jesus in the suffering of Christ. They were there at the resurrection of Christ. And they right now forever worship Christ. They surround the throne. Jesus sits on the throne. They are sent. Christ does the sending. And the writer says, Christ, verse 4, has a more excellent name than they. What are their, their name is messenger. His name is his son. And so the preacher reaches over to Psalm 2 and uses that. Uses that psalm, makes it messianic. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and he says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then if that's not enough, he appropriates a story in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where, where Nathan is speaking to David about Solomon and he says, here is this Christological. This is pointing to Christ and says, I will be a father to him. And he shall be to me a son. You see the difference the preacher's making. Angels, they are messengers. Jesus, his name is son. But the name is important because the name reveals essence. And the essence of Jesus is God. Here is this claim that he is making to Jewish Christians, don't don't compromise because the one we worship is God. Psalm 2, right there uh, in verse 5, Psalm 2 is vital. 
That psalm, you may recognize it, it's, it's quoted. It's what, it's what the people heard at the baptism of Jesus. It's the thing God said to the disciples at the transfiguration of Jesus. This is the psalm that, that Paul will use in Romans to validate resur the resurrection of Jesus. This is the psalm in Acts chapter 13 when, when Paul is preaching and he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. He uses this psalm, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. John tells us in John chapter 1 that the resurrected Jesus, he has the, the, the crucified, resurrected Jesus, he shares glory with the Father as of the only Son, and he comes to us as a rescuing Savior. Do you see him like that? Do you see him as your only source of hope and sure strength? Do you give total submission to Christ, the name that is above every name? We need to see him as a rescuing Savior. But that's not the only way the preacher presents him. There's another way to see him. We need to see him, number two, we need to see him as a reigning, reigning Savior, as king in verse 6. Notice what the author does. The author now takes our eyes off of the earth and puts our eyes on heaven so that we might, we might see Christ as deserving our full Worship. Now, to do that, he does something interesting in verse 6. Verse 6, he doesn't go to the Psalms, he doesn't go to history. He reaches all the way back into the law in Deuteronomy. There he reaches into the Song of Moses. And he quotes Deuteronomy 32. You can go look it up later. That's the Song of Moses. And there is Moses speaking about God. The preacher takes that to say, He's talking about Jesus. And so what he's doing is he is equating Jesus with God. He is superior and do our honor because he is the Savior. In fact, let me read it to you, verse 6. And again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship. Angels, the worshipers, Jesus, the one to be worshipped. Worship. The word worship in English comes from the old English word worth-ship. To say he is worth what you give him. What is he worth? To be a Christian, what does it mean? Is it, what is it worth to you? Is it worth enduring, to endure, to go through hardship, to, to, to stand under societal pressure, to suffer? What is he worth to you? When you think about your salvation, do you see the crucified, resurrected Savior reigning as Lord over your life? Is he worth, any, is he worth the inconvenience? Is he worth hardship? Is he worth persecution? Is he worth bankruptcy is he worth scorn a bad job a difficult marriage it, it helps us as christians it's interesting the preacher is not saying here are 10 things that are going to help you not compromise no what he does is he sets christ in his reigning glory in front of his people and he says now look at him 
It, it helps us to see him living, read the stories. It, it helps us to remember him suffering. It helps you to remember Jesus dying in your place, taking that for you. It, it helps us to remember Christ raised from the dead, to, to see that he is worth every hardship that you walk through. You see, the, the danger is to compromise. To compromise the overwhelming superiority of Christ in your life. I mean, the people this is written to, they're not so different than me and you. The people this is written to, they were either under some sort of governmental persecution from Nero, which we're going to have some of that, or they were, they were being threatened to be ostracized by friends and family. And in order to prevent that, what they could do is just compromise their beliefs. I mean, a compromise is not an outright denial. It's not a deconstruction. A compromise is not rejecting Christianity. A compromise does not require you to say, I'm not a Christian it, it's only a, a lesser and different affirmation of him. It's a stepping away from his greatness, step away just enough so your head keeps down under the parapet. Just enough so that you don't get into trouble for being a Christian, but not so much as that you would be denied being a Christian. That's what they're in danger of is compromising. It's the big danger of, of gospel-believing churches in today's society is compromise. To prevent against compromise, we are, we are called to see him as a rescuing Savior, to see him as a reigning Savior, Lord on the throne. There's something else I think that you'll see here in the passage. Here's a third way to see him from what the preacher says. Number three, I want you to see him as a sovereign Sovereign Savior. Sovereign. We try to use that word a lot around here because you're never going to, to think God is too sovereign. We always think he's too little sovereign. I want you to see him, the, I want you to see the bigness. Your idea and understanding of, of God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit should continue to grow. And sovereignty is the bigness of Christ. And here in the passage... To display his sovereignty, the preacher takes us to two more psalms in verse 7 and in verse 8. He once again is quoting the Bible. And he pictures Jesus Christ as the reigning king and angels as his servants. Let's read verse 7 and 8. Remember, this is a quote from the psalm. <clears throat> verse 7. Of the angels, he says, this is Psalm 104, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Here's the contrast. But of the Son, he says, here's Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. A throne. Come with me. To the, the, the angels are mentioned in verse 7, but it goes right to the Son. Verse 8, the throne. They have a throne of power, a scepter of holiness, and Jesus as Lord over it all. 
Many people would say, when you read verse 8, many people would say that verse 8 is the most emphatic and unequivocal statement of the deity of Christ in all of the Bible. Because you go back to the context, uh, uh, context of Psalm 45, and there it is God, the Father. Psalm 45 is, the, is God the Father testifying to the Godhead of Jesus. And, and once you see the supremacy of Christ in, in all things, it starts to bring your life into this sort of terrible tension because so many, I mean, this is the world we live in, so many other things, so many other desires and people that are clamoring for your time and your affection and your allegiance and your compliance. And this preacher knows, and he's putting this in front of his people, this preacher knows that if he can... If he can just get his people to see Christ on the throne, if they can just see him reigning as Savior, then the things they face are, 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 are much more bearable, much less likely to complain about the kingdom they're living in because it's his. When we see the sovereign Savior, when we see Christ on the throne, it, it calms the waters, it, it sets our priorities, it's it strengthens your convictions. You know, we compromise. People compromise because we really don't see Jesus as Lord. We compromise because we see him as a soft place to land, a pillow to rest on a place to catch us when we fall. And he certainly is all of those things. But let us not forget, he is the reigning Lord. You see, the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of Christ must capture our hearts. We need to see him as a Savior that rescues. We need to see him as a reigning Savior. We need to see him as a sovereign it's good to have the word sovereign. We need to see him as a sovereign savior. I want to press it a little further in verse 9. He's still quoting the Bible in verse 9. Here's a fourth way to see him. <clears throat> Number four. I want to see him as the redeeming savior. We need to see him as the redeeming savior. To display, to display and present Christ as the redeemer, the preacher goes to the prophets now. Isn't that interesting? He's quoted from the history books in 2 Samuel. He reached into the law with Deuteronomy. He's, he's come to the Psalter so many times quoting the Psalms. And now in verse 9, he takes us to Isaiah chapter 61. And let, let's read what he says there in verse 9. <clears throat> you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Look, look, keep looking at it, quoting Isaiah. Loved righteousness, hated wickedness or lawlessness, anointed with the oil of gladness. Loving righteousness, hating lawlessness, anointed with gladness. 
So, so many things right there in verse 9 from Isaiah 61, so many things brought together, loving righteousness, hating wickedness, anointing with gladness. Here is Jesus Christ, not just a righteous example. Sometimes um, more moderate, theologically moderate preachers will use this to talk about Christ as just the example. And I think you missed the point of who Christ is. Here, Christ is not just a, a righteous example. He is presented as a righteous substitute. Living his life on earth, loving the righteousness of God. When John the Baptist was asked to baptize him and John the Baptist said, no, you ought to be baptizing me. Jesus said, no, you baptize me because it fulfills all righteousness. When we think of Jesus hating wickedness or lawlessness go with me there go with me to the temple as he flips over the tables go go with me to the garden of gethsemane and there see him agonize as he thinks about the cup that he will drink hating the sin hating wickedness think about him on the cross and there hating to the degree of saying my god why would you abandon me you know what this passage does this passage sets us right down in front of the cross and shows us redemption. Here is Jesus purchasing people, purchasing you. And in fact, <clears throat> the preacher, uh, Hebrews, is so it's, it's good to read it all together. We're going to take a year to go through it and pick things apart, but when you read it together, you see themes start to develop. And the preacher will will use this very same theme, even the thought process, in the most famous passage in the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Remember what it says there after giving the, the roll call of faith in chapter 11? And then he says, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here comes the the thought of wickedness. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, anointed the oil of gladness, who for the joy who was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, the point is, the point is that we should see him as the one who died on the cross in our place. God raised him from the dead. And that salvation is so spectacular that we should never compromise. Jesus enduring the agony, but doing it, he did it for the absolute joy of seeing you redeemed, of seeing you saved and cleansed seeing you restored and forgiven. We need to see him as a redeeming Savior. I'd like to close with one last thing. It's a long passage, <clears throat> but it's good for us to be reminded of this, verses 10 through 14. I want you to see him as a victorious Savior. This is helpful to my own soul on days like today, just to, to, to remember the good good sovereignty of the Lord Jesus on the Lord's day as a victorious Savior. 
There in verse 10, 11, and 12, 13, and 14, he put two psalms together. And both of these psalms speak to Christ. One speaks to Christ as the unchanging, immutable, if you like the word, the unchanging creator. The other one speaks to, of him as the victorious Savior, the, the undefeated victor. Let's, let's look at the first one, 10 and 11 and 12. That's the first psalm. There's the unchanging creator. Let me read it to you, verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. So what's a preacher do? He reaches over to Psalms and says, this is Jesus. And here the preacher quotes Psalm 102, and he sees Christ as creator. It's the same thing we find in John chapter 1. It's the same thing we saw at the very beginning of this passage. And as he quotes it, here is Christ the creator. And the whole quote, go back and read it, is saturated with a Trinitarian theology. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and, and Jesus is presented as the unchanging God who is to be known and revered and worshipped and obeyed. Shows us Christ as creator, but then he ends this, uh, this little, little sermon here. He ends it with a crescendo of sorts. And he quotes in verse 13 and 14, in verse 13, Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. You see it over and over again. It is the coronation psalm. It speaks to Christ as king. Let me read it to you. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Isn't that isn't that how we are to see him? Salvation completed, prayers heeded, enemies defeated. And here is Christ during his earthly ministry. During his earthly ministry, Christ defeated the curse of the law. He defeated sin. He defeated Satan. He defeated worldly powers. He defeated death and hell and the grave. And he will eventually take death and Hades, according to Revelation, and throw them into the lake of fire. Now he sits on his throne. He hastens that day, even today. A day is promised in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, a day when, when he will wipe away, won't this be good, a day when he will wipe away every tear from his people's eyes, death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying. There'll be no more pain, for the former things have passed away, and Christ is king. When you remember Christ is king, you think the, of the supremacy of Christ and it captivates your heart, you don't want to compromise. When you see him as a rescuing savior, you see him reigning as Lord over all, 
You see him as sovereign, the bigness of Christ. When you see that Christ redeeming you, purchasing you on the cross, when, when you see this self-same Jesus as victorious, winning all the battles, it means you can trust him today as Lord. You can trust him as Lord of your life. What I'd like to do is just sort of close out our time it's a little unusual today, just praying for you, praying for our church, praying that we will trust Christ and never compromise. So before we're dismissed, would you allow me just to, to pray for us? Join me as we pray. Father, I pray you give us strength to fight off compromise, to live for Christ, God, use your people, use Hickory Grove, find us faithful, put in us a desire to, to be steadfast and stand strong. Give us a deeper, more profound love for Christ. Lord, wash away our sins over and over. Let us see the righteousness that you have given us in Christ. May we envision the Lord Jesus as reigning on the throne, and, and may that vision drive us to live our lives for Jesus. Lord, hear your people here on the Lord's day. So we depart here. We, we ask God that you give us strength to live in a way that honors Christ. God, use us this week to honor the name of Jesus and bring us back here next Lord's day to worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, everyone. You're dismissed.